This podcast is brought to you by Prolongevity, the award-winning eight-week program that can transform the lives of people with prediabetes, type 2 diabetes, and many other lifestyle-related illnesses. Founded by Graham Phillips, the pharmacist who gave up drugs. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Prolongevity podcast. And today's guest um, is a good friend of mine. We've been working on and off together for some years now, and a colleague who also works closely as part of the public health collaboration, Dr. Ian Lake. And I'll let him talk um, a little bit more about this. But um, Ian is a a GP, a practicing GP, and also himself has, uh, I think the term we use, lives with type 1 diabetes. So we're going to focus um, a lot today on type 1 diabetes, but not to the exclusion of all else, not least because I believe that uh, those of us who are mainly concerned with type 2 diabetes have an awful lot to learn from from type 1 and from Ian's uh, website. And uh, we'll certainly talk about your website as well, Ian, because I think it's a stunning resource generally, but particularly for type 1 and I have this belief that type one kind of get the thin end of the wedge and there isn't enough support out there. So if we can do a little bit for all of that, that that'll be that'll be good as well. Um, so I thought perhaps we start in, if I may, with your own personal history, because uh, your uh, arrival as a type one diabetes didn't happen as is traditional in, in uh, teenage years or in, in, young, in your young years. But um, as an adult, perhaps talk us through that as, as a beginning. Yeah, thank you, Graham, for that introduction. Uh, I became type 1 when I was 35 years old. I hadn't had a day's illness really before that, so it was, it was very much a shock. And it was an almost over, well, the same day experience. Um, looking back, I can understand that uh, I might have had a run-in um, with tiredness more than anything else. But certainly I didn't have any of the uh, frequency of urine or, or thirst that is traditionally associated with the onset of type 1 diabetes. I was working as a, a locum GP before I, I moved into practice, and I was also doing some hospital work as well. So I was sort of working quite hard, as um, a lot of people do at that stage in their career. Okay. And um, I fell asleep in a car wash, and that should have been the first sign of something not quite right. It happened to um, anyone. It happened to us all the time. And then um, somebody tapped on the window and said, you're happy to move on. And uh, of course I was. Um, and then the next day I was doing a locum and um, on the way there, it was only a 30 minute journey. I had to stop in the hedges as it were about four times and I had a raging thirst. And I had to buy some drink at fuel stations and I must've drunk two liters of water. And this all happened within the space of about two hours. Um, and before that, everything seemed to be okay. Uh, so when I obviously got to my locum um, place of work, I, I thought, this doesn't look right to me. So clearly I did a test and, hey, presto, is type 1 diabetes or is late, late in Porto mean adult onset diabetes? I think that's what it was diagnosed as. Yeah. In yeah. those days, 25 years ago, there wasn't any testing for autoantibodies. So it was assumed that it was, a, it was a type 1 presentation because I also had ketones in the urine as well. And the blood sugar was modest, really. It was only about 22. Mm. Um, my first thought is, what am I going to do? Um, <laughs> I know that's a funny question, but um, I thought, am I going to turn myself into hospital tonight or am I going to turn myself in the next day? Um, the other problem was that at that time I held a pilot's license and I knew that it was going to be game over as soon as I declared my type one. But of course, yeah, yeah. you know, for public safety, um, for, for reasons of probity, you know, you have to be honest about things. So the next morning I turned myself into my doctor. Um, my blood glucose was about 18, I think, at that point. So it was going down. I drank a lot the night before. Um, perhaps I should have gone in with ketones, um, yeah. the sensible option. Um, but I decided to go in the next day and started on insulin the same day. And uh, then uh, from there on, I was sort of trying my best to do the Daphne type of approach, really dose adjustment for normal eating. Uh, for a start, it was all about cutting out refined sugars and doing your best to stay in the honeymoon period. And that lasted about two years. So I was on about two, four units of insulin for about two years. 
but of course, eventually uh, things catch up with you and then it gradually crept up over the next two or three years to about 30 to 40 units. And at the end, before I decided to try a keto lifestyle, I was on about 40 odd units of insulin a day, um, a mixture of basal and um, bolus uh, insulin as we do now. And at that stage, my HbA1c was running uh, at about uh, 60 to 70. My last three readings were 70 millimoles, which is about eight and a bit. Uh, I had quite a lot of personal life crisis at that stage, so I, I defocused on diabetes. And up to then, it was running at about 50 to 60 for, for 15 years or so. Um, and, and that, of course, was considered reasonable, but, but it wasn't ideal. Um, and the other thing is, you fooled yourself, don't you? Because I thought, well, if I, I, I was, did a lot of cardiovascular exercise, so I thought, if I carry on doing a lot of cardiovascular exercise, that the poor sugar control, the glucose control might sort of be offset by cardiovascular, you know. You were trying to outrun a bad diet, were you? I was trying to outrun a bad diet. Yes, I was brave indeed, <laughs> indeed. So that's how it all started. And, and towards the, the last three years, I was feeling pretty rough. I was starting to mm. feel old. I was getting joint aches and pains. I was getting brain fog, um, you know, just, just lapses of concentration here and there. And I thought this isn't very good, you know, trying to, trying to do a job in general practice and yeah. not feeling completely up to speed, um, you know, as far as, as far as um, feeling alert goes. It's like feeling at the end of a long day before you even started your morning. Uh, so getting through a day was quite hard work. Um, and at that point, I'd read Richard Bernstein's book. I was actually Googling for something else about Taiwan. I can't even remember what it was, but I saw Richard Bernstein's book and I bought it. So I thought, that sounds interesting. And I read it at sort of within a couple of days because it was a very, very tempting sort of um, offer that he, he was providing. And I put it down and thought, well, there's quite a lot of fat in that. And uh, of course, you should be eating a low fat diet. <laughs> uh, so I, I put it down and left it alone. Uh, and a year later came my first, you have early diabetic retinopathy warning. And coupled with feeling pretty grim yeah. and having had a, a near... I wouldn't say fatal, but a very serious episode where I, I was camping overnight in the middle of nowhere, ran out of glucose supplies with a sugar of 2.4, uh, and um, vision was starting to go, and I had nothing, and I was in the middle of nowhere. And luckily, I found some food on the, in a labor um, on the road, um, and it was that bad. So the combination of events took me into, into keto. And that's probably typical of most people. Is, is when you get into a dire situation, you yeah. start to look elsewhere. Looking back with the benefit of the retrospectoscope, do you think there were warning signs in the sort of run-up year or so before you had this um, self-diagnosis? Uh, no, I don't. But to be honest, no, um, no. I, my glucose levels were swinging quite badly. Um, you know. 20 wasn't unusual, mm. three wasn't unusual regularly, uh, tending to run higher rather than lower to, to, to manage a diabetes, to, to manage a general practice clinic. Yeah. Nothing worse than thinking about going low. So sugars are between sort of uh, six and 12, really. I set 10 as a target, strangely. I thought 10 is not bad. You know, it's, it's a bit hard. Average. And, and I shudder to think now that that, that, was, that was what I was doing. But, that's the sort of day in the life of most people, I think, with, with type yeah. 1, a lot of people with type 1. And um, I'll link to Richard Bernstein's book because um, it's a book that I read. I can't remember if it was on your recommendation. It's certainly someone from our group. Um, I can't say it's the best written book I've ever re re read. I don't think he's a great author, but the information and resources is fantastic. And quite remarkably really still stands alone i think i can't think that it's really been superseded or bettered um even to this day yeah keith runyon's done a, a good book on keto in taiwan as well um he has he himself is a physician he's a renal physician in the states and he has taiwan as well uh, but he i think he borrowed from richard bernstein's experience and, and adapted it and, and wrote his own experience i think rich is what and he's still broadcasting and firing an awful fossil is in his 80s i think now yeah. and in remarkably good health so he's his own best model i guess he's a great model because when he was in his 40s he had diabetes at age 12 and when he was in his 40s he actually had complications mm. 
So he had what's called a Charcot foot. So he had joint disease where his foot collapsed, and that still exists today. But he also had hypertension. He had protein, protein in the urine, uh, and he had uh, retinopathy. And within months of working out that keto diet was probably what he needed to do, all of those disappeared. And that's remarkable because you do get people living with diabetes 50, 60 years, and, and they seem to not have any problems, and they're, they're sort of the people you want to emulate. But we don't really understand the, 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 the breadth of, of um, expressions of this disease. I mean, some people have a worse deal than others. I think it's a bit like arthritis, all autoimmune diseases. Some people with rheumatoid arthritis get a, what you think is a really bad deal, and others sort of don't do so badly. Yeah. So I think it, it, it has a, there's a big spectrum in type 1. Yeah, and the fact that so many of his symptoms have resolved and have remained resolved for 40 years, and you've said similar, um, doesn't just give hope for type 1 diabetes, but I think gives hope more broadly to uh, cardiometabolic disease. So I will come back to that. Um, but I wanted to go back to some basic fundamentals because people talk about diabetes. They don't really differentiate um, and we'll pump onto some of the nuance because there's type one and type two, but there's a whole load of shades of gray now. Um, but when you hear the word diabetes, it's generally assumed to talk, be discussing type two. And type one, in my view, very unfairly doesn't get a, a mention. So have you, there's debate around the causes of type one, but have you got a, a perspective on that? Um, with, well, Clearly, type 1 is thought to be an autoimmune disease by and large, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, there are other reasons that the pancreas fails, but effectively type 1 disease is autoimmune disease. Um, the, the, but yes, I agree, type 2 is is always assumed when people mention diabetes. So when the newspapers scream, a cure for diabetes, um, which clearly is just going to be diet in type 2 mostly. Yeah. Um, of course, there's no known cure for type 1. We can, they're thinking of delaying it with anti-inflammatory type immunosuppressant drugs. Um, and you can delay it, but you, you can't stop the process from happening and just delay it. Um, so, yeah, I think type 1 is, is, um, is, is, is a bit of a Cinderella disease, even though it was probably the first diabetes, it was type 1 diabetes. And, of course, type 2 was relatively rare, certainly even at the start of probably your career and, and definitely my career. Diabetes type 2 was was sort of not really even a subspeciality yep. there's just not much of it out there and, and of course since the 70s and 80s as um, the dietary guidelines changed and obesity rocketed and, and the amount of ultra processed foods and carbohydrates in the diet rocketed so did metabolic disease and it became apparent that a lot of people don't just have the genetic makeup to handle the amount of carbohydrates that they're eating oh. but of course in type 1 diabetes it, it's, it's totally different and uh, that's why I think um managing if you if you don't have insulin it's it's, it's a totally different condition to having too much insulin or not necessarily having enough but just about having enough to survive if you get your carbs it depends on how you define type two and of course yeah. type two has a broad um a broad um uh etiology as well there's lots of different causes of type two it makes no sense to me that two million years of evolution would lead us to be autoimmune in other words for us to you know literally decide that our own protein of our own bodies is alien and then attack it and it's also clear that although these diseases are rarer they're growing very rapidly Ooh. so there's something um this is my perspective which, which may or not may not share there's something i don't like the term autoimmune disease you know um there, there must be a cause this sort of idiopathic well it's autoimmune let me shake our shoulders um, does the answer lie in the microbiome, for example? It's interesting you should say that. And, and I think you're probably right from my experience. And the only direct experience I have is when we did the, the, the run over five days a couple of years ago. Uh, for those that aren't aware, uh, eight of us did a 100-mile run over five days with no food at all. And two of us had type 1 diabetes. So... We were, we were able to experiment, really, with how much insulin the body really does need. Mm. And there were two people with type 1, and we both were roughly on about 20-odd units of insulin a day. 
which people with on a keto diet seem to get down to compared with the, with double that for, for most people with type one on a high carb diet, probably just due to the carbs alone. But over the period of uh, when we were practicing fasting, our my basal insulin requirements about eighteen to twenty units a, a day, uh, split over two two doses, to, yeah. uh, just to make it more accurate because I don't use a pump. Yeah. Um, and I got that down on day two and three to four units. And on day three, I had zero units. Yeah. Now, the body does need insulin. And, and I imagine because I'm on ultra long acting called Traceba, I imagine some of that was still hanging around the system. But it was interesting how little insulin I really needed yeah. when I wasn't eating food. And that led both of us really with type one to think, well, what's going on here? And the other observation was that about we could eat. And until about 12 hours or so after eating, our glucose was pretty stable, even if we hadn't taken any insulin. And then it went up, and then it was more difficult to get down. Yeah. And it seems that as soon as the food hit the gut, and then it started to, to, to cause the glucose to rise. Now, we do know that autoantibodies um, don't necessarily predict type 1. There are four recognized types of autoantibody. Uh, only two of those are actually, one, one is anti-insulin and one is anti-islet cell. Yeah. And the other two, the common ones, uh, well, one of the common ones, uh, GAD, glutamic yeah. acid decarboxylase, isn't actually anti-insulin at all. It, it's anti-GABA, which is anti the nervous system um, around the beta cell. And then the other one is a zinc transporter autoantibody, which is involved in, in, in um, transmembrane sort of signaling. So you, you need more than one autoantibody typically to, to, for the disease to progress. And, you know, the common one that is more associated isn't actually associated with, with deleting insulin. It's more associated with probably stopping it being released. Um, but we have no further information on that. Certainly I don't. Some, some, some of your, your um, viewers may. Um, so we, we're just wondering, because you can actually delete an autoantibodies as well, as certain autoantibodies don't persist in the body, so they're not a reliable um, uh, marker of diabetes because there are a group of, uh, especially children, who have type 1 diabetes and don't have any autoantibodies at all. So they may have even a different type of, of type 1 diabetes, uh, which isn't auto, autoimmune. So it got myself and, and John Furness, who was the other type 1 on the run, just thinking about doing some fasting experiments and trying to measure autoantibodies. We, we, we don't know how long autoantibodies last. Yeah. Are they there permanently? Are they, are they a response to, to, to a stimulus or are they permanent? And, and I think because they're, they're, they're mediated by the called T cells, they're probably uh, permanent, but it, we, we don't know. And we were considering introducing certain foods that are, are more known to be associated with type one and just see what happened to our uh, inflammatory markers. Yeah. But we haven't got around to doing that test yet, that study yet. One, because it's hugely expensive. Two, nobody's particularly that interested. We can't generate enough interest. And certainly there's no money in it for anyone. Because if you can actually show that certain uh, combinations of food or certain types of food actually uh, reduce your chances of, of your glucose going up, well, it, that's an easy win, isn't it? It's tantalising, but absolutely, uh, it's something we haven't looked at. But but yes, the microbiome may well play a role in that. But but also infections play a role. Um, viral infections are well known to to play a role in, the, in type one, and of course, type one is is, is increasing incidence with COVID as well, uh, which is interesting. And then certain enteroviruses and Coxsackie viruses that are associated strongly with, with type one diabetes. So it's not just autoimmune, is it? There's, there's probably some autoimmunity around uh, the viruses as well. Sure. Um, I guess the question then is, does a damaged microbiome make you more prone? We certainly know that that makes you more prone to COVID and um, infection generally and, and, and. Is there somewhere underneath all that that if you're damaging your fundamental area of defence to everything, including viruses, makes you more prone? I mean, I don't know, but I mean, there certainly seems to be a link with other autoimmune, so-called autoimmune diseases. I'll, I use the term, although I resent it, um, and microbiome. So, you know, um, and I also see it in clusters, just like we see this cluster of diseases that we would probably um, um, call metabolic syndrome. But, you know, we see the clusters of um, 
type 2 diabetes, uh, cardiovascular disease, dementia, cancer, with probably a single root, a root cause, mainly around diet. And I just wonder whether that I, I see also clients who have autoimmune disease, they often have more than one. And they've been told, oh, you've just got unlucky genes. Have yeah. they got unlucky genes or have they just eaten a diet that's making made them? I mean, I realize that's an oversimplification, but I think it's always an, it's an area to explore. So the fundamental of type one is a lack of insulin. Yeah. Um, do you feel that type ones get a share, a fair share of the health voice? Oh, of course not. <laughs> uh, I, I think there's a, there's there's a lot of ignorance around type one, and, and it's a scary condition as a doctor to manage. Yeah. And I think it's it's quite difficult for. I mean, I can't imagine being a parent of a child with type one. So it's quite a worry. I mean, hypoglycemia is the big worry, uh, although it's relatively uncommon, um, uh, severe hypoglycemia. But of course, it's 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 very serious if it happens, and of course, it can be fatal. So I think that leads to a certain level of caution about managing type one diabetes, because the last thing anyone wants to do is is um, better to be high, too high than too low. So unfortunately, it's better to be high than to be low, yeah. and, and that leads to this mentality, as I was saying earlier. You're probably better off running at about eight to ten rather than running at sort of four to six, especially in what I call my bad old days of high levels, high volumes of insulin, <laughs> sort of surging sort of blood glucose all over the place uh, yeah. regularly. You know, going for a run was absolutely nightmare, really. Yeah. yeah, things like that. But they're so easy now. And is it still the way that people are told? I mean, my, the impression certainly from my type one uh, patients and clients is eat as much carb as you want and just control it with insulin basically that's the extent of the education has that got any better sorry i missed that graham it cracked up a bit my, my clients and patients are from the both from the pharmacies and from prolongevity seem to be basically told well eat as much carb as you want and then just add the insulin to control it it's all yeah, about that, that, matching that um and no one says well maybe if you eat ingested less i mean the sugars yes but the carbs don't really get a mention um, is that still the case from my experience of, of, of the mainstream certainly that that is what happens you know people say oh well you've got to take carbs because you're taking insulin yeah which begs the question well why don't you sort of take less insulin oh because you need insulin because your body doesn't make it yeah um so so yes it's very much instant carb driven and of course if you're if you're having three meals a day and you're having to snack and then you probably inject insulin between your three meals a day, you have this absolute nightmare situation called insulin stacking where nobody's quite sure what your blood levels of insulin are because one insulin hasn't finished working before the next injection and that stacks up on the other one. And then does it all zoom down at once or does it sort of spread over a long period of time? And it becomes a very difficult problem. That is the, the reason for most of the erratic control that, that people see. And, and I think it's a difficult issue. There's more and more, ac um, I think, acceptance. Yeah, I think it's more and more acceptance of low carb, but it, it's the niche. And it's very much a niche market at the moment. Now, and um, you said that as a GP, obviously you know about type one now, but as, as a sort of conventionally chained GP, you would have had, few insights into the management of, of type one and, until you've sort of gone on your own journey to discover it. And I think that's still the case. Most GPs lack confidence with type one. Um, do you think they should be better trained and more empowered or to, to support patients better? Would that, would that make a difference? I, I think with, uh, I think if we could get GPs to take on people who want to go low carb and, and I think low carb I think keto is the ideal situation in type 1 diabetes and I'll talk about that in a second yeah I think keto management of type 1 is a primary care based um, practice really I mean, if you think about managing type 2 in a type 1 in a hospital once you've learned the craft of, of counting carbs and how much insulin you need to inject what your ratios are that's the sort of job done, really. And, and the rest of your time is, is spent monitoring complications. And of course, that can be done remotely anyway now. I mean, when I have my retinopathy screening, I don't see, don't have to go to the hospital. It's all automatic. And, and ditto the, the protein, uh, proteinuria screening and one blood test a year done by a nurse and 
GP yeah. sometimes gets in touch and sometimes doesn't, depending on what my cholesterol levels are. Really. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, and that's pretty well it. So, and then of course, when complications happen as a diabetologist, you then subcontract out your complications to to other specialities. So the cardiologists get their fair share, the renal doctors, the ophthalmologists, uh, and the stroke unit, and, and and the surgeons, and they all they all take on the complications of type one diabetes. And be, but because type one is so difficult to control with carbs, it's probably best left in the hands of people who, who are dealing with that every day. But with type one on keto, there are very few surprises, and, it, and it's a very rewarding condition to treat because people do have six times fewer hypos uh, on uh, on a keto, on a, even a seventy-five gram, which is a, a low-carb diet, but it's by no means in the keto zone. Oh yeah, so it's very very safe from that point of view, and people tends to get blood glucoses in the normal, even non-diabetic range, routinely. Yeah. I mean, I'm pretty poorly controlled, and my, my HbA1c last one was 41, and that's reasonable. But yeah. a lot of my friends are in the 30s. You yeah. know, they make me look really slack. <laughs> Whereas I'm, I'm quite happy with that, because, you know, that, that, that that's a reasonable number compared with the 70 it used to be. So I think but the problem is it takes t- time to learn. Uh, and it takes time to get the numbers and the confidence. And there's only about one in 150 of us who have type one, thank goodness. So most GPs, in, in, you know, would only have one or two on their, their nominated list. And in the practice, there wouldn't be that many unless it's a very large practice. Yeah. So, but you can make it a subspeciality within um, within general practice. It's just a matter of having the will to do it. Type uh, secondary care like to to sort of own type one, if you see what I mean. Um, whereas, you know, you don't have to, a lot of, I think 20% of patients prefer to attend primary care for whatever reason, but primary care, see, uh, secondary care do see it at the moment as, as their domain. Uh, now, obviously you've gone your own track with a type one keto. What is your, what's the reaction of your secondary care team been? Is they see you as some kind of her- lunatic heretic or are they actually quite supportive of what you're doing? I think the former would uh, would apply. Um, I'm not. I'm, I'm, I'm under control of my GP um, for my my diabetes management. My GP has always been very supportive. To be to, to be fair, I had quite a bad sort of time early on when I went keto. A little bit evangelistic, I think, um, and I don't think secretary care thought much to it. And, and uh, certainly the letters I got back because <laughs> I was a locum, I, I managed to sort of check the letters two to three months after if I went back to a practice. I, th- I think a lot of doctors don't realise that locums actually work fairly permanently at some practices. Yeah. I've been working at the same practice for a year now. Yeah. I don't just turn up, do a session and move on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and some of the letters are quite scathing about, about my, my recommendation to look up um, keto to patients. So, yeah. You know, There's a long way to go. Yeah. There's a long way to go, but I did do, um, I have a, um, a subscriber group on my website and we got about 20 responses from what I'd call the, the keto ninjas, really. These are the sort of people with type one who have decided that they're doing keto, whatever, yeah. and they've looked it up. They're pretty well experts. And yeah. their, their response to, to a questionnaire I sent out about attitudes was that they think about 40%, there's only 20, so 40%, of the people that replied thought that their doctor or nurse was supportive or certainly not unsupportive. And that's quite a high number. Of the 60% that were unsupportive, 25% felt that um, there was a a worry about sort of cardiovascular disease and and fats. And and that's that's valid, I think. Uh, And and the other 40%, the the reasons were the learning needs really of the the specialists. Diabetic ketoacidosis will happen if you if you're in a ketogenic diet. Well, that's completely utterly wrong. Yeah, even a starter. And, and the main other reasons were, were were personal reasons such as oh, it's a bland diet. Well, that's isn't that, that's not an evidence based sort of in, in piece of information. Is it? Or, oh, it's, it's not true diet. either. <laughs> well, no, absolutely. And, and, and the other things like oh, it's, it's unsustainable. You know, or or you need to treat from time to time. But, but that says a lot more about the health behaviour, the eating behaviour of, of the clinician rather than the... It, it does, yeah, yeah. So, um, just in summary, I mean, you're clearly those who are on keto type 1 just generally do much better. Yeah. And they're averaging 
HbA1c is under much better control. How much less insulin do they do they need? What what do you think the kind of baselines probably would be? I mean, that's it's a very broad question because it's very individual, but. Uh, as a very How much rough, less insulin are we talking yeah, about? As a very rough rule, most people about halve it. And they're the people I think with, with type one, it, it, it type one's difficult to define really because people after about 10 years of high carb diets have been injecting high volumes of insulin. Because we inject our insulin under the skin, it doesn't behave in the same way as insulin that's been secreted from the pancreas. So automatically people with type 1 will have a higher concentration of insulin in their bloodstream, irrespective of uh, whether they're eating or not, really. Um, so um, you, you have sort of type 1s who haven't yet got type 2 yeah. because we, because of the high-carb environment that we're encouraging patients to, 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 to adopt, eat what you want, inject what, you know, just a suit, and that was a result of PENS coming out, really. Unfortunately, just as a side, PENS came out roughly at the same time as the guidelines said, eat less fat and more carbs. So PENS gave that flexibility. And, and I think it was tantalizing. And we might have done the same, you know, because the type one life was pretty miserable. They're pretty grim insulins. They're just sort of mixed yeah. insulins. And, 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 you know, it wasn't a very easy life. So I think it was tempting to say, oh, we have these pens, inject what you like. We, we give you flexibility. Yeah. And no, no, it's probably gone a bit too far. But if you're injecting a lot of insulin and naturally your body's uh, stacking that insulin up and you, you're giving yourself the conditions that will give you type 2 diabetes. So the people I think we should just, for the listener, explain, because this is a bit technical. Yeah. Um, okay. Stacking is where the, the pre, you're adding a bit more insulin on top of a previous dose and it hasn't quite run yeah. out. And yeah. you add a bit more to bring yeah. the blood glucose down. Yeah. And in the end, the, the sum of all the parts can end up with a dramatic hypo. Yeah. And it's um, the dread of the hypo. I think fear of hypos pushes people ever higher because they kind of feel okay when the blood glucose is higher, but they're actually not. And then more and more insulin, just as in type two, you've got escalating levels of the of, in, of, of naturally produced insulin. Um, the body's forced to produce more and more insulin to try and control the sugars. And eventually the body becomes resistant to the insulin. So type two diabetes almost, almost by definition is insulin resistance. And I don't think it's entirely understood that in type one, you follow the similar path with eat carbs, add more insulin eat more carbs add more insulin you're adding more and more to the system likewise the system will become uh, resistant so you end up with effectively type 2 diabetes on top of your type 1 which yeah. is the worst of all possible worlds yeah absolutely and of course some of us will be more prone to type 2 diabetes than others some yeah. some people with type 1 will have type 2 in the family or have obesity in the family cardiovascular disease uh, just because you have type one, unfortunately, doesn't mean you don't get anything else. <laughs> yeah, type one's just an add-on to to everything else, as far as we yeah. know. So um, th th there's a wide range of of, of, of of insulin doses within type one itself. So the people who are more insulin resistant, they tend to be more have more of a weight issue, uh, and they tend to be on like high tens, 60, 70, 80 units of insulin. Yeah. Whereas the the people who haven't diabetes for less time um, they tend to to be on about 40 units or something and then they halve that whereas the people who are on absolutely huge doses I, i've got my favorite um pictures is of a patient uh, or sorry a person with type one from from utah called uh, gina roberts and she's on a website called resoluteketo.com but she was um she developed type 1 diabetes as a result of having pancreatitis so she, her pancreas became necrotic because she was on about six anti-inflammatory and, uh, uh, anti and, and immune-modifying drugs for a condition called SLE, which yeah. is a, uh, you know, which is quite a nasty uh, sort of rheumatoid-type disease. Yeah. Um, and she was on 120 units of insulin, and she weighed uh, something like 21 stone or something. Uh, and within 15 months of going low-carb, she came off all of her six immune-modifying drugs and reduce her insulin to, to 20 units and lost 11 stones in weight. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing story. So, so that's one end of the spectrum where she'd given herself massive type 2 problems as a result of lots of, lots of insulin. Um, 
which kind of segues me quite nicely into my next question, which is, we talk mainly about type two and metabolic syndrome just because it's such more, so much more common. But what can we, um, those of us who are concerned about type two work with that community, what can we learn from type one? Because just as a basic um, example for, for me, and this, this may seem somewhat naive, if it was all about calories in, calories out, you would just get a type one diabetic by diabetic and give them more calories and they'd put the weight on and they'd be fine. Right. Yeah. So it seems even at the basic level, we all accept if you've got no naturally produced insulin because you've attacked your cells that produce the insulin, you can't absorb calories. So there seems to me a lesson, a really fundamental lesson there that's a statement of the bleeding obvious, but this seems to be missed. What else do you think we, we can learn from type one? I think the interesting thing about type one is because we have to inject our insulin, I know it's in the wrong place, but it, it reasonably mimics physiology for the sake of argument. I think we have to assume yeah. that. Yeah. Um, because we do seem to, you know, people live 50, 60 years or more on insulin, which is remarkable when you consider putting it in our skin. Yeah. Um, I think it's interesting to see the effect of insulin on metabolism um, of, of macronutrients. You know, you can see directly uh, what uh, carbohydrate is doing or, yeah. or by, by the lack of insulin you're injecting or the, the overdose of insulin. You can see what effect protein has on the body. You can see what effect saturated fat and other fats, you know, high fat meals have on the body. And you can, you can see insulin resistance developing in what we call acute situations. So... Um, type one, if you if you have a, a really fatty protein meal and a large one, that will that will to some extent stop your insulin from working. Yeah. And, uh, and 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 it doesn't matter how much insulin you inject, you've just got to wait for the metabolism to to catch up, if you see what I mean, um, uh, for the blood glucose to come back down again. Uh, and, and I think that's quite insightful for people um, learning about hyperinsulinemia. You know, it doesn't matter how much insulin you put in in that situation. The body's not going to going to handle it, and I think that that is um, a, a good analogy, really, with type two diabetes. That you have high levels of insulin, but they're not actually doing the job they should be doing because you've got other problems going on in the body. And I don't know why the body does that because, in in some ways, it doesn't actually escalate; it plateaus, which is absolutely fascinating. Why does it plateau? So the, there's enough insulin. Otherwise, if, if there's not enough insulin, you just you just go up and up and up. Yeah. Um, so there's enough insulin, but it's clearly not working. And Is it something to do with insulin work. and glucagon interface? That ratio? I'm sure that's working, but but why does it hold it at a higher level? If you mean, why does it hold it at 10, 11? That is tantalising. That's classic sort of level, and that's tantalising around the renal threshold. Yeah. So so whether. You're, you're losing some sugar. I've never actually tested the euro for years, unfortunately. Well, I have to do that. Whether you're losing, just spilling it over, and it's keeping yeah. it in a plateau for you uh, until it's had time to deal with whatever it's dealing with, and, and then it deals with the sugar at, at some point, the glucose levels at some point. But yeah, I'm sure it's, I mean, it's obviously all of the many hormones that are uh, playing out in the, in the digestive system, isn't it? Sure. So we've, I don't want to come into this into more de detail, but I think we're agreed that the keto diet is the optimal diet for type one, although it's it's obviously a choice and it's a choice you can choose to make or not, as long as you're making an informed choice. And as we've agreed, type one is no insulin and type two, it's too much insulin, but you kind of end up in the same place to, to some extent. So, which begs the question, is the optimal diet for type 2 the same diet as the optimal diet for type 1 when, it, when, it, when you come down to it? Well, I, I, would, I, would, I would argue that, yes, it is, but I don't necessarily think you need to go as low as you do with type 1. Uh, if you've got enough insulin on board, because, again, in type 2 diabetes, some people with type 2 run out of insulin, um, but not everyone. About 80% don't. But about twenty percent do, I think, from the figures. So, but it, but if you if you've got too much insulin, the best way to to, to, to get the levels down is to cut down the, the very thing that's stimulating it. Um, so, carbohydrates, obviously, yeah, uh, probably um, too many meals, um, not giving your gut a rest 
and yeah. that's probably important as well. And just having the, the, the digestive system constantly stimulated. And some people clearly don't have the enzyme makeup and the metabolic makeup to, to cope with that level of mainly carbohydrates and ultra-processed foods, isn't it, as well, which refined foods, which yeah. body finds very difficult to handle. Um, so you mentioned earlier on, and I, 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 I didn't pursue it because I wanted to come cover some of this basic stuff, your heroic experiment, 05100, but I do want to talk about that. Um, a, because it was a fascinating insight, and B, um, what conclusions can we draw from it? So just give us a bit of the background to, to that experiment, and then let's kind of flesh it out a bit. Well, I, I, I've done a lot of runs. I'm not, I'm, I don't really call myself a runner. I'm more of a jogger more than anything else, but I, I like that sort of physical activity because it's good for the mind. I, I sort of meditate a lot when I'm running. It sort of sorts yeah. out problems for me, which is most of the reason I do it, I think. Um, but more and more, I was running without food. I thought, well, the best way to tackle a half marathon is just don't bother to eat. If your basal level of insulin is right, yeah. your, your blood sugar is going to stay the same. Um, so why complicate the issue with, with, with food? And, and why do you need food for yeah. energy when you've got a massive fat tank inside you? Even if you're thin like me, I've got 100,000 calories of fat um, ready to go. So, so why why add more? Why add more? Exactly. If you think about it. If you, if you look outside and look at some buzzards and things flying, one, they're flying to enjoy themselves, but two, they're hungry. Their, their weight has dropped, so they're, they're hungry and they're going to have to fly to go and find some food. Uh, and then, of course, when they've eaten the food, they, 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 they don't bother to fly for a while because um, they, they don't need it. And, and I think, well, we would only in the natural way go and get food because we're naturally lazy as humans. We're probably going to go and get food when we're hungry and find it. So we'd probably be relying on our fat stores to, to, to go and get it. So I was doing a lot of, a lot of running sort of, sort of um, uh, fasted. And more and more frustratingly, you know, it was, oh, if you're taking insulin, you've got to have carbs. Oh, you need sugar for energy. You know, how are you going to do exercise if you don't have sugar? You know, and oh, if, you, if you're in nutritional ketosis, you're bound to get diabetic ketoacidosis. So those three things were sort of bugging me. I thought, well, how can I convince some people who don't really understand that or don't want to understand it, uh, mind upon that one, yeah. um, how can I convince those people? How can I put it beyond doubt that this is safe? So I, I came up with the with the idea of, of running fasted. And I thought, well, how long do I need to be fasted for before it becomes obvious that you don't actually need to eat sugar for, for, for energy? And I thought, how much fat do you need to burn to show that fat burning is okay before you start to dig into your protein reserves, because at some point you're going to need to dig into your protein, which is probably not that healthy. So we keep banding about this number of 25,000 calories. A lot of people stand up now and say, you've got at least 25,000 calories of fat, so you're okay. So I thought, well, let's actually prove that. So I worked out that 25,000 calories is about 100 miles. And I yeah. thought that a five-day fast was manageable. I'd already done a seven-day fast, but not exercising. Didn't feel brave enough to exercise at the time. Uh, so, so that's how it came about. And I thought, well, if we can prove that you can actually not eat and run um, with diabetes type 1, if you don't get diabetic ketoacidosis at that point, it's probably unlikely that um, nutritional ketosis is going to be a risk factor for diabetic ketoacidosis. Yeah. It will put beyond doubt if you use all of your glycogen stores up, which are only 2,600 calories or something, even in yeah. that if you can use 10 times your glycogen stores and still be alive at the end of it, well, clearly you don't need sugar for energy. Yeah. And that's how it sort of came about, really. So I how did you, that's okay for one nutter to, uh, to have a go. <laughs> exactly. But, how did you convince other people to join you? It was absolutely amazing because <laughs> once I got it into my head, I thought, is this possible to do or not? And, and I, I never really quite believed it, even when I was tur turned up. To start but even though we had trained a lot by then and we'd had a big focus group of, of scientists who were looking at this so is it possible yes we think it probably is uh and i just rang people up and hardly anybody turned it down 
I think we should phone me I up. Up I'd love to have joined you yeah. <laughs> for the next one. Yeah, that's right. So, so it just took off. I had a mind of its own. And then, unfortunately, COVID intervened, so we had to stop and then retrain. Then we got a little window of opportunity where, where we decided to take off. Unfortunately, two or three people couldn't do it, so we left with eight instead of the original 12. But, and then one, there was another type one who was training in Switzerland, but she couldn't come across because of the COVID rules, which was unfortunate. Um, because she was fully trained up, so it was, that would have been a third type one, and, and it was it was a, a fascinating experiment. It was um, it was recorded a lot. You know, we did quite a few tests. We had metabolic testing and we had keto testing. We had blood all wore continuous. Well, three of us, four of us wore continuous glucose meters, and subsequently, it's been replicated in South Africa by a university team who are going to publish as well. Is this? They, is uh, it, am I right? Is Tim Noakes was behind that? Is that correct? He, he was. He was. I think he was um, underwriting it. If you see what okay. I mean, I think he'll probably be involved in the write-up. Right. But uh, he didn't get involved directly in it. And they replicated it. exactly what you did, or they've done yeah, something exactly different? the same. But I think they did more testing of cholesterol, and um, you know, it's much more formal testing from a university department. So they got right. the funding to do it. Yeah. And, and that went off without a hitch. Same principle, and is, but that's not in the public domain yet. I mean, the, no. that they're doing it is known, but they haven't published the paper yet. No, it's all done. They did it last year, and it's a complete success. No issues at all. So who were the other participants on your excursion then? Yeah, so so there's myself, there's John Furness, who's a fellow type 1. He's a, a sort of amateur athlete, really. Uh, his He knew um, James Cracknell, who's the double Olympic gold rower, who's trained on carbs, but was starting to get the idea about um, fasting and, and, and health. And um, Ali Ibrahim, sorry, who's a consultant psychiatrist specialising in eating disorders. Uh, he was fantastic to have along because he had all of that extra knowledge that, um, that, you know, that tried to show that deliberate fasting isn't necessarily, can't construe it as an eating disorder. Uh, and then Gail Gary, who most people probably know, who's a, practice nurse and, and low-carb practitioner in, in Solihull. Um, and, and then we had Trudy Deakin, who's the uh, nutrition doctor, uh, doctor of philosophy and head of expert patient who run lots of low-carb programs. And then we had uh, Steve Bennett and his son-in-law, Jake Thompson. And Steve um, uh, is a very uh, enthusiastic low carb by having had a severe metabolic disease uh, in his sort of 50s his businessman and ended up um you know becoming quite ill uh, and, and he survived and, and did really well so i think that that makes up eight brilliant yeah. and what was the experience like for you I and mean, obviously it was proof of concept but i'm sure it was much more than that it, it was fantastic to finish it was fantastic to finish and for everyone there's quite a, an ex- expectation to to sort of for everyone to, to do it. And of course, we were relatively incognito because to be perfectly honest, I hadn't got a clue whether I was going to finish this. Although I, I sort of knew I would because I, I trained well, but injuries happen, heart attacks happen, you know, things happen just because they do, you know. Yeah. And uh, and I felt a duty of care really, even though I didn't need to have uh, to all of my fellow participants because I talked them into doing this. They'd willingly come along. They, they were very, very enthusiastic, and you know they, they did well. So, so to finish it was one a relief, but two a vindication of, of uh, you know the, the idea that um, you can successfully have a, a keto lifestyle and remain healthy. And, and the ketone levels from the people with type one and the ketone levels from the non-type ones, if you if you aggregated all of the graphs, you could not separate out the two groups of people. You just could not find a type one in that group. So, so that's pretty profound. Yeah. Just that on its own. And what was the actual experience like for you when you were on it? Were you starving hungry? Or? No, it was fantastic. We were all fired up. Um, nobody was hungry. We were a bit hungry on day two. Day two was the longest day. Um, we, we just we, we tried to get hotels um, booked on, on on route or bed and breakfast or whatever. Um, um, we nearly did it, but the second day we tried to do twenty miles a day. But the first day was twenty four miles, and the second day was twenty six. I think so. By the last day, we only had some sort of fifteen miles to do, which was fantastic. Um, 
But it, it was full of anticipation. There are a few aches and pains on the first couple of days, but we were all pretty well trained. Everyone has taken this very seriously indeed. And uh, there's a bit of hunger, but we'd all practice fasting. I, I've done at least three, four-day fasts. So we knew what to expect on day one and day two. So there were no surprises. And, and then sort of euphoria kicked in from day three to five. And, and the mood scores on, on the, the paper that we published, the mood scores were, were all at the top end, you know, good, good mood. Everyone was, nobody was desperate. Nobody was looking haggard at the end of it. We were all completely fired up. We were, we were really fit as fiddles. We were sort of celebrating fitness, really. It was fantastic to do. Absolutely. So the other kind of uh, metabolic changes that you measured, were there any surprises or key learnings from all of that? Yes, they were, because um, Trudy and, and Gail, they both wore CGMs, continuous glucose meters. Neither of those had type 1 diabetes or type 2 diabetes, any metabolic disorder as far as I'm aware. Yeah. And uh, both of them were running below 3, and Trudy was running below 3 millimoles, which is real hypoterritory, for a third of the time. And uh, Gail was about 12, 13% of the time. And they had no symptoms whatsoever. Um Presumably, that's because uh, ketone bodies were, were providing most of the new, the brain energy, yeah. and the body was picking up, you know, from its glycogen stores and making glycogen from spare protein and from breakdown of some of the components of fat. It was providing more than enough glucose for its requirements. And, and I see this them. all the time in clients who yeah. are insulin resistant, pre-diabetic, diabetic, mm. and they see this hypo and they get panic and immediately start you know taking on board a ton of sugar until i reassure them um i'm convinced that well i i suspect we read hey we need to redefine what hypo is um and it's probably less than three i guess for many people because they're asymptomatic and i say to them, look the meter hasn't changed anything. All the meter's done is allow you to look at what's been going on for years. Mm. You, you, you're not showing great symptoms. Some of them do, but the majority of them don't show any particular symptoms. But as soon as they see the meter go into the red, they think, oh, I'm going to have a massive hypo and take on board a ton of sugar. And I have to spend, I have to spend quite a lot of time reassuring them that's probably gone on for 20 years that they haven't known about. All they're doing now is seeing it, and that's um a reassuring but it shows you how profound the insights are just from wearing a cgm i think so and with, with, with uh, hyperinsulinemia of course when you've got more insulin board when you stop eating you, you have relatively yeah. more saving more life to get a hypo i think with type one it's slightly different from my experience because if you've had type one for a long time you're getting a neuropathy yeah. you're probably getting what's called an autonomic neuropathy so you probably haven't got that nervous flexibility to yeah stimulate what's called the glucagon response to, to raise your blood glucose so some people do get hypo unawareness yeah and and some people's uh, hypo le awareness levels are quite low um so i think there's a bit more of a risk with type one no i, I should have qualified what yeah. i said i was applying yeah. it to i, I know what you mean i think yeah. you should be it for what what really low is and and sometimes strangely we People with type 1 don't, well, it's my experience and other people that I've talked to, but I don't think there's any evidence for this. My hypo-awareness level changes depending on the situation. So sometimes I can get what I would define probably as neuroglycopenia. So my, my brain's lacking in glucose for whatever reason. And I get spots in front of my eyes. Right, yeah. so that's always around 4. Yeah, It's definitely glucose-related. It's not a migraine or anything. Um, and that's around 4. Uh, and I feel a bit urgent at that point. And I'm way out. I'm, I'm in the safe legal limit for driving with that. But I wouldn't even attempt to drive in that situation. Yeah. You know, stop. Uh, but, but other times, my normal hyper-awareness levels are just under 3, 2.9, something like that. And, do and I'm you, reliably hyper-aware at that point. Do you think that's the brain changing gear to um, to be fueled from, away from glucose towards ketones? And it's that gear change. If that gear change happens smoothly, it's fine. And if it doesn't, it isn't. Probably, yeah. So it's kind of interesting to see what your if you see what your ketones were at the same time. Yeah, it'd be nice to if actually. Glucose is going that way. Ketones are going that way. And at a certain point, the brain says, "Oh well, I'll have I'll eat that instead." And you, I'm sure there might be some metabolic shift going on. It's very rare. Yeah couple of times a year probably if that but it, it does it does happen and it always catches you out because you look at your cgm and it says four 
you do your test, uh, uh, you know, finger prick test, and it says roughly the same. Yeah. Well, I'm not actually hypo, but I feel it. So in, what you do is just correct it with glucose, and then it all sorts itself out pretty quickly. But yeah, there's probably a, a transitional phase or something going on. So, you know, this definition of a hypo is, is, is what's personal to you and what your symptoms are, what you're feeling. And of course, if you've had really, really high um, blood glucose for years and your HbA1c is sky high, yeah. and then you, you start to come down, you'll probably have a degree of hypo unawareness because yeah. your body's just not used to low sugars or normal Never sugars. Had Never had it. So it's yeah, been yeah. A three or four months of a reset time, probably longer than that. Yeah. So we shouldn't believe that. I remember reading the Daily Mail uh, write-up of uh, the report. <laughs> Our good friends in the Daily Mail. I think they've all gone very quiet about it now, and thankfully. Um, in pre- preparing for, for today, one of the things I've done, obviously, is have a look at your website, and we will we will link to that, which I have to say is, is a mine of, of information um, it, it's a lot of it applicable to people with metabolic syndrome and type two, but for type one, it's really fantastic. And it seems to me there's still remarkably little good information out there in, in type one. And one of the things that you did, which struck me particularly, was a keto meal planner, mm. um, because you know it's all very well for people like me who can afford to eat an organic um, avocado from um, a £2.50 from Waitrose, but, you know, many, many people can't. But you did a meal plan and it came out um, at remarkably good value as well. So just, just talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, I, I was, I'm, I'm not a very good cook, but I, I don't mind food. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not a foodie by any means. And um I wanted to sort of, because the general vibe around keto diets, oh, they're expensive, they're exclusive, yeah. you know, you know, what you're just saying. Um, and I thought, well, actually, it's not like that. And, uh, you know, eggs cost very little. Yeah. Um, or, well, they're not that cheap, but relatively speaking, they're a good source of protein. Yeah. And there are lots of good sources of protein and, and fiber and, and, and fats, uh, which can be bought cheaply. And you can make up a good meal that's keto and healthy. And, and my rules were really, it has to be locally sourced as much as possible. So it has to come from this country if possible. It has to be organic. Um, uh, most of the meat should be, uh, have at least some standard of care applied to it, including fish. Yeah. And the standard of care was a red tractor label, which I don't think is that high a stand, but it's a gesture in the right direction. It says that we're thinking about animal welfare. Yeah. Uh, so it's a pretty low standard compared with pasture fed, but, you know, it's a start. Uh, and I just wanted to shop in the supermarkets that most people shop in. So I chose Tesco's and Aldi yep. um, and just bought a week's food, which I'd normally buy. So it's a bit Western orientated in that sense. Um, and it came out at it just as luck would have it. It came out to 30 grams of, of protein a day, which is a ketogenic range. And over the two 30 weeks, grams of, of carb a day. Oh, sorry, 30 grams, yeah. sorry, protein. 30 grams of carb a day. Yeah, it yeah. was about 90 grams of protein, actually, yeah. high protein. Um, and it was a varied diet, but relatively repetitive because you had to be imaginative with the types of, of, of um, food you could buy on that budget. But, it, but you had a different meal every day. Um, there were only five utensils involved. There's, a, there's an oven involved uh, or a slow cooker if you, if you had something like that. And that was pretty well it. There's there's nothing fancy required. And it came out of £28.50 per week per person. Uh, and that was just shopping at Tesco's one week and Aldi the other week. Um, and uh, that's about £10 cheaper than the National Audit Office provides for the average spend on food per person in the in England and Wales, which is £38.50 a week. So it's good value. Still quite a lot of money, but it... It shows what can be done. And I think if you went shopping with with, with an economy sort of mindset, you'd probably do it a lot more cheaper than that. So probably get another fiver off it, I think, quite easily. So what would an average diet look like for you then, just to kind of give give people a real understanding of what this transfer is? Yeah, well, for me personally, I've worked out for for me personally, and everyone with type 1 is different. I think there are 400,000 type 1s in in England and the UK, and I think there are 400,000 types of of management. Absolutely. It's subtly slightly different in how long we've had it, what caused it, etc. So so 
the keto diet is under 30 grams of carbs. And for me, because um, I've had type 1 for quite a long time and was managing it not that well for a reasonable amount of time, um, I've elected to do two meals a day max, one meal a day if, if I can bear to. Whereas today I've been sat in an office, so it's two meals a day today. <laughs> if I'm out about, it's one meal a day. Yeah. Uh, and that would consist of, of uh, it would be meat, which would be pasture-fed as much as possible. Um, probably offal, which is very, very cheap. You can get, okay. you can get offal, pasture-fed offal for nothing. Yeah. Give it away to the dogs, literally. Um, uh, fish, um, eggs, uh, they'd, be the, they'd be the staples, really, for yeah. protein. Um, dairy... For me personally, not so much because cream doesn't suit, um, but cheese is okay. Uh, and then as much green veg as you want, really. Um, yogurt, I had a bit of a phase of yogurt, but I've gone off that a bit now. I don't normally have puddings anymore, but it was yogurt and, and berry fruits or 90% dark chocolate. And you have to be careful with dark chocolate because different um, manufacturers have different amounts of, of carbs in them. Little, um, sorry, um, most expensive one is lint, but it's... Um, it's probably the, the lowest in carbs, um, as far as I can see. And then black everything, really, black coffee. Um, I don't drink tea. If it's tea, it's herbal tea, although milk in tea. Um, so that's it. And it just forms the, the, the basis of my, of my meals, really. Two meals a day is probably slightly better in some ways because you can split your dose of fat and protein over two meals, so you don't necessarily get this plateau. Yeah, but if you're careful, uh, one meal a day is fine. And I always tend to do some form of exercise after a meal, even if it's just a walk, half an hour walk. So I'm, I suppose because I've got the luxury of being able to do so, I take advantage of that luxury. But other people with, with families and, and different jobs and lifestyles will probably not have that luxury. But I think being active all throughout the day is very important. So we've sat here for an hour. It's very important to get up and have a wander about and just make it part of your daily life. You don't need to throw weights or anything, but I think supplementary training is good, and I think I think weight training is good because it, yeah. it gives you anaerobic exercise, and anaerobic exercise is a fantastic way of hoovering up glucose. It really burns the glucose quickly. So if you've got a slightly high glucose, slinging a few weights or doing some spin classes is a quick way of, of hoovering up glucose as quickly as possible. Yeah, and, and that's just just the other thing, Graham. Sorry about that. Yeah, just just come to me. Just come yeah. to me while I'm yeah. in full flow. Yeah. Um, we often think about processing of sugar as a metabolic process, and, and, it, and it is. The liver will, 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 will process all of your glucose and convert it into fat or convert it into glycogen, or you'll just burn your glucose for energy. But your other good way of, of, of um, using up sugar is to burn it. Yeah. Sugar is a relatively toxic substance to the body, which is why it gets rid of it from the bloodstream. Because yeah. if you have high sugar in your bloodstream, it's diabetes, isn't it? Yeah. So the body contains it in a very narrow range. So if you suddenly eat 60 grams of carbs and you're sitting down doing nothing, well, those 60 grams are going to have to go to the liver and be, be processed into fat, basically. Yep. Whereas if you take the 60 grams of carbs and go and do some exercise, if, if the body, because it's a relatively toxic substance, the body will hoover up the sugar as quickly as it possibly can for you and say thank you very much. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I, I do see this with clients where, they might go for a pub lunch and have a couple of sandwiches, but then they'll walk to the pub and walk back. Yeah. Do the yeah. same thing in the evening and it's a yeah. car there and a car back. And yeah. they say, I've eaten the same, what's the difference? And it's yeah. that movement. And yeah. also the fact you're much more insulin sensitive in the in the earlier part of the day. Yeah. So there are these little hacks, if you get to know them, these little bio hacks that you can introduce, which yeah. make life. Um, uh, the other um, thing that I want to draw out because it's so topical is you blogged about your your COVID experience. Yeah. Perhaps you talked to us a little bit about that. Yeah, I thought I had a keto cloak of invincibility. <laughs> Clearly not. Yeah. So I picked up Omicron um, uh, Christmas time. Basically, the whole family got it. Um, it was it was a cold. It was really nothing, but it affected my glucose quite badly. Um, First day was a bit of a headache and a standard sore throat sort of thing. Should I test? Should I not? While I'm working, yes, I have to test. So, yes, there's positivity. So, unfortunately, that's 10 days off work. Um, but it was interesting to watch the glucose because the glucose was going from about four-ish and then it just went it just went up at a, at a gradient relentlessly to about 12 to 14. And there it stayed. There it stayed for three days, four days, despite 
I say I take 20 odd units of insulin, about 18 to 22 units a day, depending on what I'm eating and how much exercise I'm doing. But it's a standard amount of, of, of basal and rapid to suit. And I was up to 54 units of insulin a day. That's a big increase. With, with plateau. Yeah. And it didn't. you could look at the plateau and it was just a straight plateau. And you could inject your insulin, six units, eight units, a little, and then carry it on. And and so you know my body wasn't responding to insulin. We probably needed it for for you know other purposes to to stop the um, stress hormones from working. But it certainly had a profound effect. Um, I was very careful not to carry on injecting high volumes of insulin because it can be very very dangerous. Um, you know, I always thought, well, if I'm going to go for for any exercise, it's difficult when you're not feeling very well to yeah. do anything, isn't it? But towards, you know, day three, four, when you're feeling a lot better, you can do a bit of walking. But if you've got too much insulin, it's going to suddenly operate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there comes a point when you have to be careful with your judgment and say, oh, I'm, going to, I'm going to just trickle this insulin through gently now. I'm not going to be cavalier about it. So an interesting exercise in how you have to manage infection with, with diabetes quite effectively. You're very, very unlikely to go hypo, uh, but you, you've got to be careful when you're coming off the infection, when your insulin resistance breaks, as I call it. You've got to be so careful you don't just go straight into a hypo situation. Yeah. So it's a matter of gauging it as a tight one. Fascinating stuff. So, Ian, thanks so much. Any thanks. final thoughts that um, of anything I haven't covered or anything you particularly want to uh, get off your chest before we um, say goodbye? Okay. I've got lots to get off with chess when we haven't got time. But <laughs> I would say that for anyone who's listening who's a healthcare professional, I'm bringing out a, about 15 hours of, of um, professional, um, a professional 15-hour course on managing type 1 in a keto way. It includes a lot of um, metabolic theory, uh, a lot of practical, and a lot of what I call holistic care as well. So if anybody's interested, look up on my website, um, type1keto.com, and uh, you can sign up to that Um continual professional education. Brilliant. So we'll link to all of that after the show. In the yeah, show. Thank you very much. Thank okay. you very much. Great to see nice you. Nice to see you, Graham. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye if you enjoyed the podcast and want to find out more, join our Wellness and Pro Longevity Facebook group. Don't forget to subscribe and follow so you never miss an episode and maybe share to friends and family who might benefit. Finally, if you think you might need help with diabetes, heart disease, or any of the other diseases we discuss, then book a free consultation with Graham. There's absolutely no charge for this, and we would never put you under any pressure. What do you have to lose? Bye for now, and see you for the next episode.